The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is now offering its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. See how to improve your solar project at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. For the week of December 22nd, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. It is our last show of the year, so this week we offer up our picks for the top stories of 2015. This week I am in Wisconsin visiting family for the holiday. Catherine Hamilton is in Washington as usual. She is a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you? Are you gearing up for any travel? I am not. I'm just gearing up for Santa. Christmas took you by surprise this year, huh? Yeah, I'm like, oh, it's Friday? <laughs> that's that's too bad. <laughs> Jigger Shaw's in New York. He's the president of Generate Capital. What are you going to be doing for the holidays? I'm actually going to come back down to D.C. for the holidays, and so uh, it's going to be fun. I'm spending Christmas in uh, in New York, but then New Year's in D.C. Enjoy that 75-degree weather. Yeah. Well, this show is pretty simple. We choose a story or series of stories that we think defined the year, and we'll try to, our best to minimize our use of phrases like tipping point and turning point and game changer and crossroads, but we can't guarantee anything. Catherine, you are up first. Uh, let's talk about policy, the year in policy. Boy, what a busy year. It's a busy year every year, but this year was particularly important. There were a series of both good and bad policy decisions around renewables throughout the world. On the whole, though, you think the policy environment was uniquely good for the industry this year. Make your case. Uh, yes, and I, I may have to use the word tipping point because I really do think uh, the clean power plan was pretty much the biggest thing that happened for the U.S. on policy. Um, it paved the way um, for the extenders that we got in the omnibus bill. It has garnered a reaction from utilities that was teed up kind of over the years by the failure of cap and trade, but the utilities are on board. I feel like we really are at a point where everything is changing in policy. And I think we're going to have to bring some folks along, but everything from the local side, like um, Boston releasing a community energy report that's going to look at maybe installing 20 microgrids in an urban setting, you know, having you having local policies that look at energy in a much more creative way, state policies like the New York Rev, um, California's distributed resource plan, Cal ISO growing, and then the federal policies I mentioned, clean power plan, and then global. This all feeds into Paris and COP21. And all of this is sort of the supply and demand sides are becoming much more interactive. Um, people are starting to realize that the demand side can serve as not just a load, but as a resource, and policy is starting to reflect that. I'm not saying we don't have a long road road to hoe yet, but I do think that we've made some huge strides this year. And part of that is because 
everything, all the technology, we're going to talk about that too with Jigger. The technology has progressed in such a way that the issue is not technological. So energy storage, for example, one of my favorite things, is getting installed much more in policy and embedded in policy because it isn't a technology issue, because it is a policy issue. So I see all of our policies over the last year really getting us to a very different place as we start 2016. Utility reactions. I think, were the big story for the clean power plan. You had many of the leading utilities saying, this is where the world is headed, so we're going to be integrating this stuff. We can get behind the clean power plan. I don't know if that says something about the perceived weakness of the clean power plan, but it's certainly good news that the utilities that are going to have to procure this stuff are saying it's possible. You really only have a select few members of Congress and some Republican governors who are fighting this stuff. But it's a similar story of what happened on the international stage. Many of the biggest companies in the world participated in an unprecedented way in Paris and said, we are here because we believe these solutions are cheap enough for us to procure today, and we can commit billions of dollars and commit to these targets that we set for ourselves. That was a really interesting story. Yeah. And and remember, the utilities, this didn't happen overnight. So through all the cap and trade negotiations, a lot of utilities were in the mix and part of that conversation. And they knew if it did not make it through Congress, that EPA was going to end up regulating carbon. That was just going to happen. And so they've had a number of years to kind of figure out how to shift their investments, how, you know, their aging coal plants are coming offline. I mean, there's also been a lot of pressure from the environmental community that has helped that quite a bit. But I think the utilities have had plenty of time to come along with this. And yeah, you might be able to say the clean power plan is going to be easy to meet, but it also means if you have utilities on board, that really does change the entire scope of investment. So the one thing I would say is I I agree completely that this was the year that policy finally aligned to kill coal um, globally. I think we've certainly hit peak coal, and I think we're on track to you know eliminating coal and replacing it uh, by 2050. Right. That's the point um, you made last episode. You said this is a clear signal that everyone thinks that they can put together a plan without coal. Yeah. The, but what I would say is that I don't think the same thing is true for oil. So I don't think that Enviro's and other advocacy groups have really come out with a plan to arrest uh, the growth of global oil use and, you know, come up with suitable replacements. I think when people talk about electric vehicles, this year I think we're going to sell about 120,000 electric cars, which is, you know, something on the order of 0.7% of vehicles sold in the U.S. This year we're going to sell about 15 million cars, trucks, and other types of vehicles in the U.S. Um, So... We're not quite there on oil. And so I think the next challenge over the next five or so years is going to be to try to figure out how we come up with even an academic framework for how you replace oil. Yeah, I'd say not quite there is an understatement. Absolutely. And this speaks to how easy things are getting in the electricity market. I mean, I don't want to undersell how difficult some of this work was to get the clean power plan passed and do it in a timely fashion and you know to work on these state policy fights. Like This is all difficult stuff. But in general... It's a little bit easier because you have technology change that's actually um, happening in a very real way, a tangible way. And in the oil markets, I mean, there's it, nobody can agree on what the policy should be. And the policy itself would probably be pretty expensive because none of the technologies are ready to compete with petroleum. So, so I don't know that that's true. I think the question is, it's a business model financial innovation problem. So, you know, I think one of the things that we could do is actually 
take over the utility companies and actually get them to grow this, right? I mean, if the utility companies wanted actual demand growth, they could push heat pumps, right, for HVAC, and they could push electric vehicles. Um, and they could also push natural gas cars, right, because many ut electric utilities across the country actually own the natural gas um, uh, supply uh, as well. So they could be pushing natural gas vehicles. And I think those technologies are cost effective for pick a number, let's say 10% of all of the vehicles in the country, um, as T. Boone Pickens has been pushing, you know, really hard on heavy trucks. But I just think that we're not, we have no natural framework by which to finance the revolution. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jigger, that um, we're at this place where the transportation sector can very easily be kind of leapfrog what the utility sector has been going through. And not that that has been at the speed of light by any means, but because they're now so much more intertwined, I could see that the oil issues, we're going to be able to, I mean, I, I don't know, this is a longer prediction, but trying to make sure that if, if the grid is starting to change and be disrupted, that that is all also part of the transportation sector. And just to be more specific about it, I think that you know, right now it's renewables versus the utility companies. I think this year the renewable energy industry basically beat the utility companies. So this might be an opportunity for us to become friends again and make common cause against a common enemy, which is transportation. So I guess the question is, if we're talking about this in a policy context, does this mean for 2016 that we see utilities get on board with this more holistic plan to push demand? People have been criticizing utilities for a long time, saying, you guys could be get, getting behind a lot of technologies that could seriously increase demand. And we haven't seen any of the leading organizations that lead utilities or many of the largest utilities get behind this in a big way. So if that's the case, if there is a really strong case to be made that utilities can get behind this and not just push renewable electricity, but all these things that can start phasing out petroleum and increase their demand, do we see them get on board in 2016? My feeling is that no, we won't yet, because they're still <laughs> going to be bogged down in many of these state battles over solar and DG. But uh, I'd be interested to see over the next year if, if that starts to change and we see more of the utility leadership try to drive that message. Yeah, so when I said that the utilities were on board at the clean power plan, that's because the electric generating units are on the hook for compliance with the clean power plan. And it means that utilities want to control that process. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do what we want them to do or that they're going to actually embrace a lot of these technologies. They just want to make sure that they control how their future looks. That doesn't mean they're all going to be successful. I mean, I think some of them will embrace some of these. I think in other cases, they're going to end up just being wires companies. And that's probably totally appropriate. I do think that, like, so today there was an announcement around Google and Ford working together to actually create a separate company um, to build autonomous vehicles. I think that the electric utility company is going to see a resurgence of those kinds of announcements, and I think they're not going to want to be left out. So I think you're going to see the big guys like Duke Energy or AP or PG&E or Southern California Edison actually set up an unregulated subsidiary to try to take advantage of this new you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Okay, there are two ways to look at this. One is that in the U.S. and internationally, we got incremental policies put into place that don't do nearly enough to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and get us to a two degree temperature rise by the middle of the century. Another way to look at it is we got unprecedented steps in place that put us on a pathway to 
improving these goals, both on the international level and on the national level. Do you take the skeptical take on these improvements, or do you think that these are important steps that we can build on? No, I've always looked at this kind of UN stuff as glass half full, right? I mean, I think what came out of the accord, which I think people missed, is that it actually said in the text that the goal is zero carbon by the end of the century. That's a big deal for every country, including Saudi Arabia and others, to all basically like, you know, mostly agree that we're going to hit zero by the end of the century. Now, as an entrepreneur, our job is to make that happen faster. Catherine, you get the last word on this one. Yeah, so one story I just wanted to mention was I um, have been part of this World Economic Forum group where it's people from all over the world working together to try to come up with our vision of the future of electricity. And a year ago, a little over a year ago, we met in Dubai and I kept saying the words energy storage and people kind of looked at me with you know, baffled in confusion, except for a fellow from Sony who said, we are building a pilot project in Okinawa with energy storage. And everybody said, oh, really? Is it ever going to work? So this year we went back and got back together in Abu Dhabi and everything had happened. The amount that had changed was astounding. So Sony had finished their project. It was working. We had brought everybody along. And I just feel like there's this confluence. And, and I think the COP reflected that the technologies have all come together, that this is not the issue. The issue is, are we going to create policy that's really going to move us forward? And that became quite evident when we started looking at what is the future of electricity. And so I will, I will stand my ground on policy being one of the key drivers. So pivotal, a game changer, a watershed moment. Is that what we're saying? Absolutely. All those <laughs> words. All those words. Okay, Jigger, you're up next. You chose for your story the debate around climate solutions, what's best, deployment or R&D. This is a debate that has raged for years now. Why choose it for 2015? Well, because I think this is the year that we won, right? I mean, this is a year that, you know, we decide that the world basically decided that it's not a chicken and egg problem, right? It's actually the chicken comes first and then lays the egg. And um, and that's really what solar and wind has proven, right? Is it for all of the Moore's Law stuff and all of the learning curve stuff, that only happens when you actually deploy technology, right? That when you deploy technology, things get cheaper and investors feel more confident around investing in more R&D. So, you know, for sure, the solar and wind wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the consistent R&D spending that's been happening for the last 20 years. But that R&D spending would have, wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the policies of Germany and Japan and then California to actually scale up the technology, right? And I think that I'm tired of the debates around the technology that we have today is not worth deploying. We need new technology in R&D. And I think when you look at, you know, whether it was John Morton, who, you know, was at OPIC, who told me that in Paris, his room full of people were 90% for deployment, 10% for R&D, or, um, you know, the Twitter sphere and others who, you know, commented on the story, I think, 90% of people agreed that on a chicken and egg problem, it was the chicken that came first. I noticed something really different in Bill Gates' latest manifesto on this subject. So we didn't really get to talk about this much in our Paris conversations. Shale Khan and I had a conversation on the interchange, sort of outlining why this debate is so heated, where it comes from, what works and what doesn't work around Bill Gates' messaging and, and similar messaging from other people like him. But there's something really different in his latest manifesto, and that was 
he did start recognizing the important business model innovations and technology improvements in conventional renewables, and then also started choosing technologies that he would want to support that seemed more mature, like solar paints, um, like vanadium flow batteries, technologies that are close to a commercial scale or at the pre-commercial scale. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting shift because he has talked about technologies that are 10, 20 years off, talked about an energy miracle. In this latest manifesto, he doesn't talk about miracles. He talks about bridging the valley of death and finding technologies at a pre-commercial level that can be helped, which seems to be a pretty radical change in rhetoric from him. Do you agree with that? Oh, completely. And that's why if you read my LinkedIn article, I recognize that in the article. I didn't I didn't bash him at all in the article. I just, you know, the 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 title that was chosen, as you know, as a journalist, the title that was chosen was a little bit more of, you know, a clickbait title. But the piece itself that I wrote was, you know, very pro what Bill Gates was doing, just recognizing that we had technology that that has been largely overlooked, I think, for the last 20 years. And I think Bill Gates and a lot of the folks that partnered with him on this announcement sort of said as much um, and that we really needed to bring those technologies to the forefront. Yeah, when I was at NREL in the 90s and I was trying to get Congress to boost the R&D funding uh, for renewables, that was, and, and efficiency actually too, it was really important then for us to continue to do that. And I actually think what we invest in R&D is pitiful compared to what other countries invest in R&D. So I, I think that should be continued. But what a lot of people in Congress say now, it's a bit disingenuous where they say, well, we just need to do more R&D. We shouldn't do more tax credits. And Lamar Alexander, the senator from Tennessee, was notorious about this. He'd say, you know, I don't believe in tax credits, but I think we should just continue R&D. And then when it came down to it, he zeroed out the R&D budget for wind. It was resuscitated in the end in the final omnibus package. But it has been a trick for um, a lot of politicians to say, oh, let's just continue to do R&D. And that prevents them from having to think about how do we deploy these and make them and make them realize that they're cost effective and that they're going to take over what the incumbent industries are doing. So you know far more about what people on the Hill are saying than I do. But let me make a case against that. The ITC extension. You had people forging alliances for the last two years to get proper GOP support, targeting leaders in the House and Senate as part of these important committees that might be touching an ITC extension in some way. And because of those on-the-ground efforts, you didn't have people saying, well, we shouldn't pass the tax credit. You had enough GOP supporters who were willing to put their support behind a tax credit. And so experience in the last couple of weeks would suggest that that concern over R&D isn't as big a deal as we often think it is. Yes, what? it's been, that's correct. Because it, it, it's been used as an excuse. Uh, but the reality is that we've spent a long time and C has been instrumental in doing that in building GOP support. And I think that has been critical. Yeah. And so, and so what I'm saying is that I'm sure that for some people, it does feed into their argument that we need more R&D and that we don't need tax credits and deployment support. But it would seem to me that on the whole, it doesn't impact the debate as much as uh, people think it does. Oh, no, but it still impacts the debate. I think it's important to note where we were in 2008, right? I mean, when Bjorn Lomberg made his pitch and Bill Gates supported him with his blog posts, etc., 
we were losing the battle. I mean, that's why I went to war against the Breakthrough Institute and some of these other people, right? I mean, we were absolutely losing the battle going into Copenhagen. People absolutely sort of said, this is a shared sacrifice um, that we don't actually have the technologies. It's going to cost. Remember, the Stern report said that this, the deployment of this would actually reduce global GDP by 1%. And, you know, then you had the Bono versus Al Gore debate at the World Economic Forum that year. So we absolutely were losing this debate in 09, 2010. And it was through the sheer persistence of many of us for the last five years that we actually stemmed the tide and got people to believe in this. And I would submit to you that that's why Waxman Markey failed. That at the end of the day, that a lot of Republicans who secretly actually are fine with a carbon tax, um, you know, actually were worried that they were going to apply this carbon tax and you weren't going to get the requisite um, deployment of technologies by their constituents such that their constituents would actually just pay a higher price and then they would get voted out of office. I think with the deployment of solar at scale and now wind as well and others, you're starting to get Republicans saying, Actually, if we did pass a carbon tax, if we did actually do some of these things that people want to do, there may actually be a private sector response to providing you know, these products to our constituents such that there won't be this backlash. Yeah, and the jobs are shifting from the right. fossil industry to solar. I think what we have to recognize here is that we all want more funding for R&D. I mean, we spend a few billion dollars a year on research and development for clean technologies, and we should be in the tens of billions of dollars to match other industries. So none of us are saying that we don't need to put more resources in that area. I think the argument that we have been making for a long time, and I know, Jigger, you have really been pushing is you need to recognize the important business model innovation and how this deployment feeds back into R&D. Um, but I don't see this debate ever really subsiding. No, no, I think we've won this debate at this point. I don't think the debate is, I mean, as you said, Bill Gates is, was the strongest proponent of this before, and now he's kept his private thoughts to himself and his public thoughts are far more measured. Um, but I think we've won this debate. I mean, I think we will get a tripling of R&D budgets, but I think that will come from the fact that we have such a broad-based wealth creation now coming from these um, deployment strategies that I think a lot more people want to feed the beast and they want to say, hey, you know, if we had a Sunshot program for for CHP and we had more RPE funding for storage and all this other stuff, could we do even better? And I think the answer is yes. And so I, I think that that the chicken and the egg thing is solved. I mean, that you have to choose deployment first. And that once people actually believe in deployment, they will then feel more comfortable increasing R&D funding. Because, because unlike DARPA, you don't have a natural billion-dollar um, customer in the Department of Defense here. I mean, if the private sector or the government through um, you know, its super ESPC contracts doesn't buy these technologies, then the technologies come out of R&D and just sit on the shelf with the valley of death. Well, expect more Twitter wars in 2016. I, I think uh, the messaging battle isn't over, in my opinion. But it is really interesting to see how this has evolved. And it has changed considerably over the last few years, particularly this year. So m the defining story for me was the disconnect between the macro trends supporting strong growth in renewables and the financial markets. So let's think back to this time exactly last year when we were recording this podcast. Oil prices had crashed. We were all wondering what the impact would be. A lot of people thought that because renewable electricity, where the true growth is actually taking place, and and petroleum markets don't intersect, really, we'd likely see uh, 
we likely wouldn't see a strong negative impact. But that was not the case in 2015. Energy companies across the board took a beating this year, including many leading renewables companies, a combination of headwinds, which was depressed oil prices, the prospect of rising interest rates in the U.S., and then later in the year, skepticism over growth assumptions at a few companies caused this rush to the exits for many investors. And it was just such a chaotic year, right, with most companies performing well in the first half and then getting decimated in the second half. And I just created a list here of some of the the hardest hit companies, Ab and Goa, which we talked about, they have unique problems related to taking on too much debt. They were at a peak of 1925 this year. They're down to $1.51. Sun Edison's peak was 3117. They're down to 671 as of today, and that's up uh, significantly. Enphase 1460 peak down to 359. Uh, $3.59. NRG Energy, $28.16, down to $11.07. Solar City was down by half in November. It shot back up after the ITC extension. Of course, every major yield co was down by a lot. Uh, Finavera Renewables as well was down by half. I could go on and on and on. I've compiled a pretty long list here, but you get the point. There were some bright spots, of course. Iberdrola was up, First Solar was up, SunPower fared okay. Tesla had a rocky ride, but was up from the start of the year. So a lot of smart people have tried to pinpoint exactly why the second half of the year was so bad for many of these companies, particularly because the demand for renewables is so good. And it's a combination of factors, which we can talk about, of course. They're all working together in different ways for each company. So in the background, going back to oil prices, Oil prices, commodity prices clearly played a role in investor appetite for energy stocks across the board. So did the prospects for rising interest rates, which are bad for increasing the cost of renewable energy projects. But for companies like SunEdison and NRG and SolarCity and Enphase, investors dumped the stock for different reasons, mostly because they weren't meeting expectations or because they were developing overly ambitious strategies that didn't sit well with shareholders who might have had different expectations. You know, in the yield coast space, it was... Uh, a downward spiral caused by a glut of yield coast stock, yield coast paying too much for projects, concerns over interest rates once again, um, aggressive dividend targets among some yield coasts that basically required never-ending growth. So the takeaway is basically there's a stark difference between the economic trends that are driving development of renewables and the way the companies operate. And that's not really that insightful for savvy investors out there who might have their noses deep in the financials of each company. But I think it's an an important lesson for us all to realize uh, we're going to see a lot of turmoil in this sector. Strong demand for for renewables and improving economics doesn't necessarily mean successful companies. So I think that was a really important lesson of 2015. You know, I think that when you look at SolarCity in particular, right, where um, their market cap is about $5.4 billion. Vivint, before Sun Edison bought them, was roughly a billion dollars. I think that, you know, Solar City is pretty fairly valued. And I think that, you know, that's part of the reason why their stock price came down, right? Remember, Solar City basically had um, really unreasonable and unworkable growth targets. I think they corrected those growth targets in the last quarter. And, you know, now they're on a more sustainable pathway to accomplishing their goals. The other thing that's occurred is that. There was this sense from the yield co markets that um, that that logic had been dislocated from the cost of capital, right? So people were saying, "Oh, solar is so low risk that you know we can buy assets at four and a half or five percent after tax returns," um, and that was simply untrue, right? The fact that the stock was overbought 
and the yield curves were providing where the prices were so high that the net dividend yield was 3% didn't actually mean that the underlying risk and the assets deserved a 45 or 5% cost of capital. It just meant that people were really interested in owning the yield kill stock. Um, and Sun Edison lost its head and was overpaying for assets by 40%. Um, and you know they got corrected for that. And, and there was a lot of assumptions made by Wall Street analysts that were proven to really be too generous, right? Solar City has really generous assumptions around re-signing 90% of their customer base at the end of the 20-year lease term to further leases, et cetera, that all came under question. I don't think that necessarily means that um, that solar stocks um, you know, were are oversold right now. I think it just means that they were overbought before with really healthy, um, probably too aggressive assumptions, and a lot of those were corrected this year. Yeah, it seemed like you had these visionary leaders who were doing, taking really big risks because they had to get their technologies out there. They had to make big plays. And now it has to kind of course correct and you have to get down, settling down to running the company. I think a lot of these folks are going to come back. So our Sun Edison podcast was one of the most listened to of the year. People really want to know your take in particular, Jigger, on what's going to happen with Sun Edison. So the company pulled in this credit facility from Blackstone Group to help fund operations. Uh, it restructured its deal to buy Vivint, so it's paying less in cash for uh, the acquisition. People seem to, to like this strategy. What did you think of it, and what do you think Sun Edison's turnaround will look like in 2016? Are they going to claw their way back up? I think I don't. I think Sun Edison is out of the woods in terms of bankruptcy, so I don't feel like they're on the verge of bankruptcy like I did a month ago, I think. And it wasn't the Blackstone deal. It was the J.P. Morgan deal, I think, that really saved them. Um, it you know, gave them about $209 million of cash and freed up around $580 million worth of debt off their balance sheet. But I think the bigger problem that Sun Edison has is twofold. One is, is that they're doing too many things. And the second thing is that Ahmad refuses to acknowledge that they are a glorified construction company. And he desperately wants them to be a technology company like his days of old in the semiconductor space. And until he fixes that, Sun Edison will not get back to $30 share prices or $40 share prices, right? I mean, it, Sun Edison's at the core of their business is cash management. And Ahmad has not yet proven to Wall Street that he understands that lesson and is willing to actually staff accordingly to make sure they manage their cash better. So is that the difference in philosophy between a company like Iberdrola and a company like Sun Edison? Yeah, I mean, at, at, at the core of this is that, you know, Sun Edison wants to be, uh, from Ahmad's perspective, more similar to First Solar and SunPower, where they're, both of those companies are really technology companies that have bolted on development companies. But at their core, both SunPower and First Solar would rather just sell their products or their projects at COD and not actually be in the IPP business. Sun Edison actually develops projects and clearly is in the IPP business, right? I mean, those are different business models. That means that you have to make sure you never run out of cash. And when you do run out of cash, guess what? You know, there is not a safety net underneath you, right? Remember what's happened to AES or Calpine or Mirant or some of these other companies who've gone through bankruptcy, right? Because they were over levered, which is what Sun Edison is. They're over leveraged and they didn't manage their cash well, right? And I just think that 
people don't realize that Sun Edison really is a company that's all by itself. There is no equal to what they're doing around the world on the development side. And, and you know, maybe, um, maybe other companies are sort of approaching what they're doing, but Sun Edison is in this very unique space, and then they're, and they're just not run well as a company um, for the space that they're in. Were you surprised with how poorly many of these companies fared in uh, 2015, Jigger? No, I mean, I think I've been telling people regularly that Solar City was overvalued before. Um, I think that, look, when you look at Sun Edison or Solar City or some of the other stock prices, right? I mean, ultimately, Solar City, for instance, for a long time had a negative cost of capital. Every time they announced a $500 million fund with somebody, their cost, their stock price went up by $500 million which makes no sense because that $500 million is not their profit margin. That $500 million was their total revenues of which maybe $50 million was their profit margin, right? And so for a while, the Elon Musk effect was completely divorced from the reality of profits, right? As, as somebody who has an MBA, you know, the, the value of a stock price is supposed to be the discounted cash flow value of all of their future earnings discounted back to today. That wasn't true for Solar City, and it certainly wasn't true for Sun Edison and some of those other companies. I, I do think that solar, now that we are a multi-billion dollar industry that employs more people in California than all the utility companies, has to start looking at itself as a cash flow business and stop looking at itself as a technology business because we're not a technology business. We're a construction business. Normally at this point in the show, we would tell you something you do not know, but instead we're going to make predictions for 2016. We've had a few of them peppered throughout the show, but let's give us an opportunity to provide some more. Jigger, what is your top prediction or predictions for 2016? So generally speaking, you know, like what I'm more focused on is what is not conventional wisdom now, but becomes conventional wisdom next year. And under that vein, I really think that the VW scandal, I joined Elon Musk and a bunch of other um, CEOs to write a letter to the California Air Resources Board to suggest a different way to sanction VW um, in California. And what we suggested was saying, instead of actually getting them to fix their diesel cars, which we don't really think is possible, um, force them to sell enough electric vehicles to actually you know, fix the harm that they did um, in greater air pollution. And I, you know, from what we're hearing, CARB is actually taking that very seriously and looking to do that. My sense is, is that this movement in the um, sort of electric vehicle space, as well as the autonomous vehicle space, as well as these other spaces, you know, I do think that 2016 is going to be the year that people stop sort of laughing at electric vehicles and actually believe that it's a real solution to um, our oil challenges. Catherine, what is your prediction for 2016? So because I'm all wrapped around the axle of Congress. Um, I do state work too, but because uh, it's an election year, presidential election year, that's going to really get in the way of getting things done. I'm very nervous that the distractions are going to be in the form of fear, like terrorism, um, a lot of posturing around that. And I'm nervous that clean energy will not get the attention that it deserves. At the same time, I feel like Clean energy and job creation and economic growth can be potentially an antidote to some of the fear. So I'm hopeful in that respect. One thing that will happen for sure is that a decision for the Supreme Court will come down on Order 745. And I'm not sure how that'll turn out. I'm cautiously optimistic that um, 
demand demand response and being able to really fully participate in all the wholesale markets for the, the distribution side will remain strong. And that will kind of uh, set the stage for us doing for a lot of other things, flexible capacity products, allowing a lot of different aggregators to participate in the wholesale market. So I'm hoping for that. Um, the decision will be made this year uh, by June. So we'll see. It could come as early as January, right? It could. Yeah. Fear-based politics, Catherine. We don't practice that in America. <laughs> yeah. Only if you're a uh, white supremacist. I'm going scare, to scare you to, into getting solar. <laughs> so I thought about some numbers that are really interesting to highlight for 2016. And I reached out to our folks at GTM Research and just asked for a few numbers. And one of which we've mentioned before is that we'll hit a million solar systems installed in 2016 in the coming months. For the first time, behind the meter storage is going to account for more than 30% of all storage deployments in the U.S. And in Australia, where residential storage is taking off, that number will be around 90%. Um, community solar installations in the U.S. are going to increase sevenfold. So we'll see some pretty big numbers hit um, for distributed generation. Just a few predictions from me. I think we'll see... A couple more utilities in the U.S. buy up solar installers through their unregulated arms or make sizable investments. I think NRG is eventually going to sell off all its green co-assets, which include the EV, the home energy management, and solar installation business. And then uh, this isn't really a prediction, but just um, just some general thoughts on where the market is headed and how companies are going to talk about this stuff. I think 2016 will be a year when Solar Plus which is what we call like solar storage, smart appliances, software, et cetera, all bundled together, starts to take shape in places like Hawaii, in Australia, and maybe a bit on the mainland U.S. Like This is the year when we start talking about solar as a grid asset in a real way and not just a standalone generation unit. Um, and finally, I think the U.S. is going to emerge as a destination point for manufacturing. Demand is so strong for solar through 2020. I think you're going to see a couple more announcements from foreign companies who want to set up shop in America. And it also seems like SolarCity's acquisition of Salevo with this ITC extension is looking like it might might have been a pretty good bet. So those are just a few things that I'm thinking about as we go into the next year. Thank you all for listening. Again, this is our final show of the year. We are eternally grateful for your support. We are thankful to our sponsor, Huawei Technologies. If you want an in-depth year in review, you can revisit every episode we've ever released at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You will find this show there where you can comment and let us know what you think the most important stories of the year were. I'm sure we'll have a lot of different opinions. Catherine, have a great Christmas and Happy New Year. Great. Thanks, you you all, too. And I want to echo your sentiment of thanks to all of our listeners. We're, we're constantly amazed and astounded at how many folks listen and give us feedback. Jigger, thankful for you as well. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. I uh, This was such a great year for the industry, and it was just really exciting to be a part of it. Here's to a 2016 full of good conversations and the occasional argument. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Happy holidays and Happy New Year, everyone. We'll catch you in 2016.